In this sermon, we'll be talking about how Christ's church will abide forever. In este sermón, hablaremos sobre cómo la iglesia Cristo permanecerá para siempre. One of the great blessings of my life as a, as a pastor and then just as a family member is the fact that I get to work with so many people in their senior years. And uh, recently, I've been blessed to be uh, working with many that are in their 90s. So uh, just this last week at our sister congregation, St. John's, we laid to rest our brother in Christ, Dale Kirkman, who reached his 94th year. Uh, we have a gentleman here at St. Peter's that I believe is 98, if I'm not mistaken. Another one who's 93. And then uh, just recently I flew out to Greeley, Colorado to help take care of my grandmother who's 95. And one thing I love when I talk with people with that many years is to hear the incredible changes that happen within their lifespan. I mean, in a way... The world has never changed as much as it has within those 95 years, for example, of my grandmother, or the 94 years of Dale Kirkman, or the 98 years of Wayne Mollis, the oldest member of the congregation. So back when they were young, for example, here at St. Peter's, the primary language of this congregation was German. All right, so German would have been used readily within our services, readily within the homes of the congregation, readily at our school as well. Within those 98 years, things have changed. German eventually got supplanted by English within the life of the congregation, and things continue to change. We are starting to use a little bit of Spanish here and there as well in our congregation. Uh, certainly back in the early years, back in the early years of, uh, for example, Wayne, our oldest member, uh, people farmed with horses. That was the prime, one of the primary means that they used to get traction for their farm implements, right? Uh, you might have a tractor, but you probably relied still heavily on your horses. And you might have an automobile, but you generally only use that about six months of the year, seven months of the year, and then during the winter season, you put it up on blocks and you still relied on a sleigh to get around. It was the time before electrification, the time before indoor plumbing and so on. Incredible changes in those years. But even in my 43 years, we've seen some changes. So I remember, for example, in the 1980s and even through the first few years of the 90s, my goodness, the churches are full. September through May, you could expect your pews to be full. Summer, maybe about, you know, 60% full, but that September through May, utterly, completely full. And for special services, for example, if it was Christmas time or Easter time or confirmation, well, you were setting up chairs in the aisles and maybe even setting up chairs back in the narthex. I remember that. One of the biggest changes in American life, right? That, that now there's, there's not quite as much this broader societal support for church going. And what have we seen? 
we've seen our, our numbers drop off, right? And we're no different than really the majority of congregations across the United States. And this might lead us to, to have some questions in our mind, right? I mean, certainly people around us have questions about what we do. If you asked a lot of people what they thought, honestly thought about going to church on a nice, sunny August afternoon just before the weather is going to start to turn, they'd say, you're nuts. What? You wasted a Sunday morning to go listen to a dork in a dress read from a book thousands of years old? Really? The world considers it foolishness, right? This might lead us to have questions. Am I in the right? You know, are these other people confused or am I the one that's confused? Will the church survive? Does the church have anything to offer anymore in this day and age? We're going to help to answer these questions. We're going to help to answer those questions by way of talking about four qualities of the church. So we're going to talk about uh, the patrimony of the church, the persuasion of the church, the perpetuity of the church, and the power of the church. And my hope is that through understanding these four qualities of the church, that you will be strengthened in your confidence regarding the church as the body of Christ. So first of all, the patrimony of the church. Patrimony, it's a, you know, it's a word, a fancy word. Really, I could have used the word heritage, but then it wouldn't begin with P, like my other three points, right? So patrimony, your heritage, your ancestry, that's more or less what that means, right? And there are uh, two foundation blocks described in our lessons today regarding our heritage, our patrimony in the church. First of all, through Isaiah, we hear these words, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Look to Abraham. Who was Abraham? Well, he was the one who received the covenant from the Lord, right? The father, ultimately, of the, the nation of Israel through whom our Messiah came. And through that Messiah, the entire world has been blessed. But through that Messiah, through Jesus Christ, he is our father. And he is more than just our father. He's also a prophet. In a sense, Abraham is one of the primary and first prophets who spoke with God and recounts what the Lord said to him. We have the the solid foundation, to put it another way, of the prophets. Those who foretold the coming of the Messiah from generation to 
generation to generation. We also had the foundation stone that Christ talks about in our New Testament lesson. Jesus says this, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, after he had given this confession, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have as well, to put it another way, the foundation stone of the apostles. And we are founded upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles by means of the holy scriptures. God's holy and precious word. Through the word of God, we have a foundation which the world does not have. The world and its opinions are a shifting sand dune. Those things which are fashionable today fall out of fashion tomorrow. Opinions which are considered right and good today, tomorrow are considered unthinkably wrong. But with the Holy Scriptures, we have something far beyond just mere opinion or fashion. In the Holy Scriptures, we have the truth. We have God's word. And while the opinions today of man will shift and change, they're here today, and then the winds of time blow them in another place. With the word of God, we have something that endures forever. And so we have, indeed, in our patrimony, from the apostles and the prophets, a sure foundation. And through the words of the prophets and the apostles, we have come to a persuasion. We are persuaded, as Peter says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's hard to think of any more powerful words than this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. First of all, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we believe and teach and confess that Jesus is the one who is prophesied by these prophets from of old. That Jesus is the one who was promised in the Garden of Eden. That he was the one that was promised to Eve to be this one who would crush the head of Satan even as he himself was wounded. That he is this great king that was promised to the line of Abraham through whom all the peoples of the world would be blessed. That he is the one who is promised to David, for example, as the one who would rule upon an everlasting throne. That he is this wounded this this wounded servant promised in Isaiah the one who would be wounded for our for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities we believe teach and confess that Jesus is the savior of the world and the savior of the world how because he is not just a mere man, but he is God in man and man in God. And that therefore, 
As it says in Romans today, this world, everything that exists was from Him and through Him and to Him. And by the way, this is a profoundly Christian persuasion. And it it helps us to understand some of the things that might not make sense otherwise in the Scriptures. You see, in in the Scriptures, we have this clear statement that the entire world was made for the sake of mankind. That the entire world was made for us and for God's holy people. But how can this be? I mean, this turns on its head so many things that, that people see and perceive as they look in the world. Let's think, for example, back to the promise made to Abraham. God uses a rather startling and surprising image to talk about the promise given to Abraham. God told Abraham, look up to the stars. Count them if you can. And yet I tell you that your descendants will outnumber even these. This is flipping on its head. A way that people oftentimes perceive the stars. See, the stars, for many people, are not a source of confidence, not a source of hope, not a source for anything such as this, but rather a source of, I don't know, maybe despair on the one hand, or just nihilism on the other. I mean, think about the way people talk about the stars now. Right? Uh, astrology is incredibly popular these days. You can't help but encounter it if you go on social media, from what I understand. It's just everywhere. This is important for us to understand, by the way. Americans haven't become any less religious. It's just they've switched religions in almost every single case. What do the astrologists say? They say that we are ruled over and dominated by these heavenly bodies, right? Now, others might look at the heavens and say, well, you know, those astrology people, they're just kooks. But, you know, what the heavens show us, what what the stars show us, is just how small and insignificant we are. I mean, we're just a blip in the great span of the universe. It's space and it's time. You think you're something? You think that there's any special significance your life has? My goodness, look at the stars. You're nothing. I mean, you just have to read some of the most popular science writers, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, to see these kinds of ideas put out there very readily, right? God flips this whole narrative on its head. God says those stars, these are a sign not of your insignificance. These are a sign not of your weakness, but rather these are a sign of my promise to you. And by this, you can be assured of your special place. In my plan. In my grand plan. 
The stars? <laughs> Little Noah's name was written in those stars when the Lord set them in the heavens. How can this all be? This can all be because Abraham's story, our story, it's all bound up in the story of God and man, man and God, Christ Jesus. For it is through him, the very word of God, that this entire universe was formed and fashioned. And it was for his sake and to his glory that it was made as God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if this is the case, then we can be utterly and completely confident in the perpetuity of the church, meaning that even if this entire world pass away, yet the church will endure. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. The heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth wear out like a, like a garment, and they who dwell on it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And therefore, we who are God's people, we who have received salvation by grace through faith, we who have been made righteous through the blood of Christ, so also will we endure forever. The gates of hell shall never prevail against the church. The devil and all his demons try as they might, they fall and falter at the glad confession of a Christian that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how powerful this is that even if that confession is given out by a little child, that even then the gates of hell tremble. Psalm 8, I think this is a great psalm for a baptismal day. Psalm 8, oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now listen to this. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Even when the littlest child cries out in faith to God, even as little Noah vocalizes his faith in the Lord in words that only the angels can understand, the gates of hell tremble and they will not overcome the holy Christian church. And they will not overcome the holy Christian church. God's holy people because of the great power with which the Lord has endowed us. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Lord has given the church the power 
of two keys. On the one hand, he has given us the key of binding, the key to, in a sense, lock people in their sins, to, to show them their accountability before God as we preach and proclaim the law. And that is a vital work that the Lord has given the church. The church is also given, the Lord has given the church another key. The key of release. The key, not of the law, but of the gospel. And this is the special power of the church. You see, this world, even though it may have abandoned the church and abandoned the word of God, it still hasn't abandoned locking people in their sins. At least what they consider to be sins. The world is glad to heap guilt and shame upon people based upon the prevailing mores, morals, viewpoints, opinions of the time. I mean, speaking of social media, my goodness, you can't go on there without people just lobbing shame, lobbing guilt on others. And if you get across somebody's perspective of what's right or wrong, well, that's it. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness because mercy and forgiveness is a threat to this whole system of trying to one-up each other with regards to having honor on the one hand or shame on the other hand. But the church offers sweet release from this. Yes, we do and we ought to bind people according to the word of God, to proclaim God's holy law, and to hold them accountable to his ways and his will. But we offer something which the world does not give. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, salvation. As long as there are people who are weighed down with shame. There will be people who will be roused to faith and glad thanksgiving at the release from shame given to them through Christ. Who took the shameful cross upon his shoulders. Wherever people, there are people whose hearts are racked with guilt over the things that they have done that they ought not and the things that they have failed to do which they ought to have done. There will be hearts which rise with gladness at the release from guilt through Him who took our guilt upon Himself in the cross. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not despair. But instead, be confident for the future of the church. Be glad for the gifts the Lord gives us in these courts. Out of our knowledge that we rest upon the firm foundation of the apostles. Out of our persuasion and glad confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As we have confidence in His Word that the church will ever endure and in the saving knowledge of the power of the church, the power to forgive sins through His blood, and to Him be all power and glory. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.